Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this morning and for all the ways that you have been faithful to us to bring us here. We ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would draw our hearts into worship and draw us into righteousness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, let's see what we can do here. We've had some technical difficulties this morning, so we'll see if anything works in our favor. All right. So, this morning we're going on a little bit of a journey. I need you to focus not just on me up here, but take in this beautiful black tapestry hung up behind me because we're going into the depths of space a long time ago in a galaxy far far away. For those of you who are not Star Wars fans, bear with me. This is brief. But we have a dire task in front of us. What is it, you ask? Oh, nothing. Just to overthrow the Galactic Empire, who's been reigning a reign of terror over the blessed folk. Our goal? To establish a democratic republic, which we know to be the only effective means of government alleviating all tension in all spheres. But there's a problem. The problem is that they have a weapon, and it is called the Death Star. And that sounds bad enough, but it is a factory, a space factory built to destroy planets with a single giant laser beam. Can we do it? No. I mean, look at you lot. Most of you are in button downs or fancy dresses. And while we are in Jedi GQ, our powers are focused on white wafers, not lightsabers. We have a problem, but there is a solution. <laughs> there is a solution. There is one among us, and he is broken through the enemy lines, fighting past the other enemy spaceships, and he has one goal. He just has to nail one bullseye but he's going too fast. He can't get his sights on it until all of a sudden he hears the voice of his mentor. Close your eyes, Luke. Uh, no relation to the gospel writer that I'm aware of. Close your eyes. And so, what does he do? But surrender all of his pilot skills and aiming instincts, he surrenders that, he closes his eyes, 
and he performs the most basic task that he learned when he had a goofy little helmet on when training with his master. And he just pulls the trigger. And the universe is saved. Sort of, except for about a dozen more films with the plat dragging on, going firmly downhill. But what's the point? The point is that sometimes the things that we take to be the most basic or foundational things are really the most important things. He had worked past this, you know, learning to trust his instincts. He had refined other skills. He had moved on. And yet, what it turned out was the most important thing was for him to go back to this basic thing and really relearn how to trust, even not just in training, but in the circumstances where he wanted to have the most control. I think that this is where we are when it comes to faith. And I'm not the first person to think this, and as I am dangerously close to plagiarizing his work already, I should just tell you the name Kierkegaard about two centuries ago saw this as a huge problem in the church of his day. He saw that people kept talking about moving beyond faith. He was in a Christian culture, but the culture had become so Christian that the it was assumed that you would believe or consent to the basic principles of the faith, but life in the church was about moving beyond those things. How would we get to the right doctrine or the perfect liturgy? You know, we as Anglicans can be guilty of this. We can be stodgy. Some of us even use Star Wars metaphors in the beginning of our sermons But often we can focus too much on what's happening at the Lord's table, or are we articulating what's going on in baptism correctly, or ecclesiology or soteriology and all the other ologies that Courtney doesn't want to hear preached in a sermon, and for good reason. We can get distracted. We can act like these things are a priority, and that these are for the more, uh, for the deeper in the faith. But Kierkegaard's conviction was that he kept being drawn back to this man, Abraham. He kept being drawn back because after Years of promise, and it was absurd to be promised at 75 years of age that he would have a son. He managed somehow to believe for another 25 years and trust in God until it was fulfilled, and then nearly have it taken from him. And yet all the while, he believed. And what kept running through his mind is that faith cannot be basic. 
we don't even know the shallowest depths of faith compared to this man. And yet we talk about moving on, moving past it. It cannot be so. So with that in mind, I'd like for us this morning to focus on these six verses of Genesis chapter 15 and reflect on what this tells us about faith. How how can we grow in our faith by looking at this interaction? Now, first, I'm going to give you all a little bit of backstory, as I am wont to do. We are introduced to Abraham as Abram in uh, technically at the end of Genesis 11, but his story really begins in chapter 12, where God calls him to leave a land of wealth and providence. His, you know, his father is well-to-do, and he is essentially a prince in the land, and God says, I would like for you to go somewhere else. I have some plans for you. I would like to bless all of the nations through you. And he says, that sounds pretty cool. I'll go. And he goes, and uh, the Lord shows him roughly where this land is going to be, but there's a famine, a couple complications. You all have been Christians long enough to know that there are some complications that happen every now and again. So he ends up going to Egypt, which uh, is not overwhelmingly a positive thing throughout the history of Scripture, but the Lord brings him back. He fights this. Abraham fights a righteous battle, um, rescuing his cousin Lot, and then all of the spoils of the battle, he gives a great tribute before the high priest, this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, and offers, makes sure to offer up to the Lord the Lord's due and really takes no thought to the possession of those things. And then that brings us right here to the beginning of uh, Genesis 15. I'm going to take this bulletin here because uh, my laptop actually did just shut off. But don't worry. You're in good hands. Have faith. So with that in mind, I'm going to read back over this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now what we see in verse 1 is that God comes to Abraham. God comes to Abraham, and it's in a vision And it's easy for us to lose this um, 
this distinction because it's subtle. But he doesn't come to Abraham just as some, you know, audible voice out of the sky. Um, We don't know how Abraham experiences him, but we know that by the way it's been recorded, that there are certain rules that apply to a vision, okay? Abraham is entered into a place where God has removed the veil of this physical plane. When we are in a vision with a prophet like Abraham, all things are possible. Abraham is no longer bound just to see things the way they are, but the way that things can be. There are new possibilities, new futures in the presence of God who brings death out of life out of death. I'm sure he can bring death out of life too, but I'd rather he not. So in this first verse, we see God come and affirm Abraham. But what does our master of faith do in response to this first assertion? I don't know if we could categorize it as doubt. I don't think that it would be uh, wrong to do so, though. I think oftentimes we forget that real faith can hold in doubt. Real faith is not afraid of doubt. When we have doubt as people that are faithful, we face that, we confront that. There's courage to admit your fears. And I think that that is part of the reason why God deliberately says, fear not. But Abraham's response, uh, clear as it is uh, in the ESV, there are a few more things, uh, a couple features that show up in the Hebrew that I don't think that we get. When Abraham says, I continue childless. That word childless actually sounds almost identical to the word cursed. So here he is knowing that he's supposed to be the conduit of God's blessing to the whole world, but he feels and is experiencing life as a curse. He's childless. He has experienced some of the fruits of God's providence in his life. He has done well, but... That's not what he yearned for. That wasn't his understanding of the promise. We can sense his confusion and attention here. Not only so, but uh, the next line reiterates this. Um, The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Well, it's clear enough, of Damascus is not of the people of Abraham, but uh, in Hebrew, there's, it's actually a pun on Er and Damascus. Uh, er is Meshech, and Damascus is Demeshech. So his heir is firmly linked to another nation. He feels disjointed. How can these promises that God has given him come true? But God responds again. God's not disappointed in Abram here. God doesn't answer him with condescension. Can't you see that I just brought you through this battle? Can't you see that I've done all these things? He doesn't do that. He says outright, 
And for the first time, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Abraham says, a member of my household. But in the Hebrew, it's literally a son of my house rather than a son of my flesh. God makes it very clear, no, a son of your flesh will be your heir. And to add to this, he brings him outside, has him look up at the stars, and promises this, this is your family. And famously, Abram believes, and it is counted to him as righteousness. Now, most of you are probably recognizing that God didn't really persuade him. Right? Abraham says, I don't have a child. This, there, is, there is a problem with your promise. God just says, yeah, but you will. And look at these stars. Now, I have never overwhelmingly been affirmed by looking at stars, so that leads me to believe that in this vision, there is something more powerful happening, right? Because Abraham doesn't just see the stars. He sees within the stars something more, something of the providence of God that helps him to know, okay, I will indeed be a blessing to all peoples for the glory of God of this God. So, that leads us to the question, how can our faith be bolstered by this? Are we just waiting on God to pull us out at night and show us something cool in the heavens? Or do we just need to read more 19th century philosophers to tell us about the problems of faith in our day? I will never tell you to do that. Not me. Justin will. I would never do that to you. I'm the Star Wars guy. No. Here's where I think that this passage really helps us to reflect on what faith is and how we can grow in it. The Abrahams of this world are few and far between. And I firmly believe that some of you probably do have the gift of prophecy. And we would all benefit from encountering a vision of the Lord from and through you. And that would bring us all to worship. However, Scripture is not meant for us to read it and insert ourselves in and say, ah, I should be more like Abraham. Do not be more like Abraham. Right? We don't need more Abrahams. We definitely don't need more Samsons. These heroes, even the heroes of faith, all the way through Hebrews 11, they are not meant for us to be perfect examples. They're meant for us to show what a great God does through a broken group of people. So we should turn our attention then not 
to Abraham who was made faithful, but to the promise keeper who met him there. To the promise keeper who is always faithful and who has promises for you. Our God is a faithful God. How many of you have things in your life where you see no way? We all need a vision from time to time. We all need to be reminded that God has a way for us out of what seems so bleak. He is a way maker. He is a promise keeper. He is the God who gives sons to those who have no sons and gives his own son for those of us who needed him and could get nowhere without him. Our God is there and he has a promise for you. And you may not feel like you're important enough or special enough or that he hasn't paid enough attention to you. But I ask you, friends, who do you think those stars were in the sky? Abraham looked forward and had faith because he saw you. God had a plan to bring you into his glorious purpose, and he has promises for you to show you how he is going to use you, use your life to bring glory to him and to bring his kingdom across the earth. Not one of us is more special than another. Our God is faithful. So as we move forward from the sermon, take joy in professing who he is. If we want our faith to grow, we have to turn from focusing on ourselves and what we should do and take delight in who he is. Profess this God in the words of our creed. Come before him with joy as we pray with boldness, knowing your closeness to him, knowing what he would give for you. And then come forward and receive from a God who gives and who makes promises. Amen.